0: All right, everyone, welcome to another episode of The Big Questions with Big John. Uh, As always, heard here on grumblingsmedia.com, as well as on all the podcasting platforms you could think of, Pandora, Spotify, Apple, Google. Basically, if you could think of the platform, we're there, Grumblings Media, uh, also on YouTube and Rumble. Uh, Today, uh, I just want to get started by saying uh, we have a very interesting guest and uh, someone that I think will enjoy talking to. Uh, just to get more insights uh, into uh, libertarianism, conservatism, the effect of economics on both, uh, and just some overall interesting topics. So, uh, ladies and gentlemen, my guest is a former president of the Mises Institute. He is a writer, public speaker, advocate for property markets and civil society. He takes particular interest in private legal systems and private money as tools for radically decentralizing political power. Those are a lot of words to, to say, I think. He's yes. got some really good ideas is what I'm trying to get at, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, he's pre- he's previously worked uh, for, for Congressman Ron Paul. So uh, it, that's a lot of cred with my audience, Jeff. Uh, and uh, as I kind of give away the thing, everyone, please say hello to Jeff uh, Dice. Jeff, how are you doing today?
1: I'm doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, great. And, you know, it's interesting. I'll let the folks in on something. When we were uh, communicating to see when we could book some time to interview you, uh, I I initially said, oh, we love having libertarian guests like you, Jeff, on the show. We'd love you to come on. And your initial response, super interesting, but I want to talk about it a little bit. You said, well, I don't know if I'm a libertarian, uh, Big John, but I'd be happy to come on. So Mm -hmm. let me ask you, what did you mean by that? Uh, Because I think... uh, Libertarian, I think, and Cap, I think, uh, Mises guy. I would tend to bucket that under libertarianism. You made it a point of saying, I don't know if I'm a libertarian or not. Can you could you talk to us a little bit about that?
1: Well, I think it's a semantic issue. Hmm. Uh, George Orwell wrote this incredible essay, Politics in the English Language, in 1946. And he was a brilliant guy. I mean, people think of him for his, his novels, but he he had done basically wartime propaganda for the BBC. Right for England, Uh, so he knew about persuasion and propaganda and advertising, and he came up with this idea what he called meaningless words, and that's words that are that are so overused or misused that they become devoid of meaning. So in his era, coming out of World War II, you know, democracy became the synonym for anything good, fascism became the synonym for anything any system of government we didn't like, and. And you know, fast forward and and as you know, we've we've lost the word liberal. Mm, true. Uh, li- liberal liberal today means something entirely different. And I, I don't like this term classical liberal, which I think is a cop out because the left doesn't mm. buy it. But classical liberal is really the way that Mises and Hayek uh delineated themselves from the post Wilson, post FDR liberalism. of of mid-century America because Mises and Hayek were at their peaks in that mid-century period. So uh, what they really meant by classical liberal, what you and I mean by liberal is uh, people don't like to say it. They mean a 19th century liberal. And all all of a sudden everyone's like, well, I'm not anything 19th century. (laughs) Um, So libertarian is much the same way. I think it has been misused and overused uh, to the point of meaninglessness. Okay. And I don't think it's, Particularly helpful or accurate now, as as a marker uh, or as an indicator. Uh, So I'm definitely someone who doesn't believe in the state. I don't think the state is the the mechanism we need to organize human affairs. I think the market is, and the family and all kinds of civic and social institutions are. The state is not. uh, So anti-state. I do consider myself on the right in the sense, not in the conservative versus liberal sense, but in the in the sense of being pro tradition, pro culture, uh, pro family, pro hierarchy, anti egalitarian. So gotcha. I would say because of those things, uh-huh. I I have to consider myself on the right. And again, libertarians go out of their way. So well, I'm neither left nor right. Well, good luck with that, folks.
0: <laughs> so it sounds to me like your objection was less to because the things you described in my mind are the way I describe myself and, uh, and libertarian, I'm, I'm comfortable with the word just because I think that's the default category. I, I can understand the distinction. If you mean you're not a capital capital L libertarian in the sense that you're not say a political party libertarian, an LP person. Uh, but you, you describe someone to me that sounds somewhere between a minarchist and an anarchist. Um, and I don't know if you're comfortable with those labels necessarily. Uh, but I do agree that words have lost their meaning, right? The same way someone will say, hey, the Republicans freed the slaves, trying to draw some association with today's GOP, with the GOP of Lincoln, totally neglecting the fact that Lincoln's GOP was were considered radicals, bloody radicals by the press at the time and their contemporaries, right, which isn't really today's GOP. So I agree with that. So if I were to say you're, uh, like, I mean, not to fall into the, the sort of the the template of the socially conservative, uh, fiscally conservative, socially liberal that you hear of a lot of libertarian descriptions. Um, So it sounds to me like maybe conservatarian, if we created a new word for you, might might be accurate.
1: I mean, I'm not really a conservative in the sense that I'm a political radical. Um, Right. Look, libertarians simply mean someone who advocates liberty. The problem is, is there's no generally agreed upon definition of liberty. You and I might say liberty is the absence of state coercion. Nothing more, nothing less. Rothbard would say liberty is the absence of the state altogether. Mm. But if you ask uh, a Buddhist or a left progressive or uh, all kinds of people, what's liberty? They they would not agree with our definition that it's simply mm. the absence of state coercion. They would say, well, you know, liberty is this condition the state of being where you have your basic needs met and you don't have to worry too much about food or rent. And they would, a lot of people uh, right. would would imbue that term with a lot of positive rights things. And so we, I think, I think we assume so much is universal. That isn't. Agreed. And so, you know, I'm just really at a point in my life where I'm hoping to get away from ideology and, and say li- liberty is not a system. It's not an ideology it's not a political movement it's simply what people do naturally when you leave them alone hmm. um so i don't i don't like to think of liberty as an ideology i like to think of it as the absence of an ideology it doesn't need to be imposed politically it just happens on its own so that's that's uh i think to to most political americans that sounds pretty pie in the sky right right but, well it certainly uh, does yeah. Yeah, it certainly does to my partner here at
0: Grumblings Media because he's a dyed-in-the-wool conservative. Conservative today's conservative, you know. And uh, this is a this is always an office debate, you know, because I'm much more of the philosophical type. Like I'm drawn into politics simply because it exists, not because I have any love of it or you know or anything like that. But I will ask you this, I, and I didn't mean to go down this path initially, but since you brought it up, it's an interesting topic. Uh, for example, you said people left to their to their own sort of. Uh, Will, the lack of uh, a coercive state, I agree with all that. But do you, for example, believe in like a night watchman state, something like what I think Nachik originally described as where it's like the state only exists to make sure that our rights are not in our liberty is not infringed by others. Mm -hmm. Like do you accept that Mm -hmm. level of state or would you because individuals left to their own uh, uh, just to challenge you a little bit. Uh, to do as they please might, you know, one of the things they might please to do is turn overly aggressive, infringe the rights of others. I'm I'm six 6'3 and a former wrestler. I could go around dropping a lot of people on their heads and take their property, right? Uh, but I don't do that. What is to prevent me from doing that? And if I do engage in that, what kind of remedy is there for
1: the aggressed? Well, I think there's a lot of reasons you don't do that. One is, uh, uh, if you were just a terrible amoral person, it might just be purely the fear of sanction, mm-hmm. whether from the, the the police or whatever, or your fellow man. Um, but, but it's, it's, you're not a terrible amoral person, so we can assume that there are, you know, you you see, uh, the mutualism in living in a world where if everyone just went around doing that. Uh, it wouldn't just be guys who were 6'4", you know, <laughs> 240 or something like that. It would also be a guy who's 150 who drops a 90-year-old grandma and takes her purse, right? Correct. And so Correct. We, we, you know, I think most of us say we just don't want to live in that sort of society. We see mutual benefit in being able to walk down the street and and, and conduct ourselves and have a house that people don't break into and that sort of thing. So – I think that most of what we think of as the order in society is pretty spontaneous. Now that doesn't mean that there aren't terrible actors uh and and monsters and you know really depraved sick people who need to be removed. There's no doubt about that, but I think there's a market for that, and I don't think governments do any better job than markets when it comes to police security, court systems. You know, jail. I mean, jail is is a, just an absolute debacle in this country. Um, you know, there certain states like California spend something north of forty thousand dollars per year per inmate in their right. system. I mean, you can, <laughs> you can give somebody an apartment for that. Um, right. So it's you know, I wouldn't say that that state prisons and the, the, the whole idea of the state prosecuting people uh, isn't working all that well. I don't think our criminal justice system is particularly effective. So it, it's an interesting question. Would I accept a night watchman and say, "Well, sure, if that's where it ended?" And, and also, uh, you know if got, look, if the U.S. federal government had, had just been reasonable for the last 100 hundred, since Wilson, or maybe maybe right. let, let's say 1880s, the pro- beginning of the Progressive Era, the Sherman Antitrust Act, that sort of thing. if the U.S. federal government had just been reasonable since then, you know, a reasonably sound dollar backed by gold, a reasonable foreign policy a reasonable you know true safety net minimalist welfare state for people who are truly incapable of working or caring for themselves you know it, it if uh, if if it had done just all those basic things we wouldn't be sitting here talking about rothbard and 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 capism and all this we'd be grumbling about potholes or something <laughs> you know in our town right right because our town's government and our state, our, our state house would matter a lot more to us, correct than correct. what happens in Washington D.C. But, but it's 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 because government couldn't stay constrained because it's not the nature of a monopoly to stay constrained that we're having this this kind of uh, endless discussion about uh, about you know whether anarchy could work.
0: Yeah, you know, and I love the way you phrased it because you. You're not being an absolutist in your views because other than to say you prefer individualism and liberty in that sense. Uh, but it's interesting that you use the word reasonable. I, I mean, I agree with you. If the government were reasonable, if uh, people were reasonable with each other. Uh, but obviously, pragmatism tells us that's off. I won't say often, but that's that's in a lot of cases not the situation where people are not reasonable. And power begets power, a control begets control so um that's an interesting thing like again i don't know if we'll ever get to the society that perhaps the two of us envision but i'd like to have that as a goal you know i don't want to just discard liberty because we've had trouble getting there i i still think it's a worthy pursuit for for society and for man
1: and and when i talk about you know obviously i'm later on you know i'm not 20 something brash anymore but when I talk about getting away from ideology, when we talk about reasonable, um, right. I, I live in the college town of Auburn, Alabama, uh, 7,500,000 people, and so it turns out that our state prisons here are pretty abominable and don't have air conditioning. Mm. So, it, you know, if if my if some of my state income taxes have to go to make Alabama prisons air conditioned to make it just you know reasonably humane, and you know we have hot muggy summers down here right um but you know fine uh, you know so that's the 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 22 year old me would not have said that right, right you that. have no right to tax me for that that's theft. you know blah blah blah
0: right right i agree with you but but uh that's interesting you know uh, and and as we sort of morph our conversation because a lot of this i have bullet points but i didn't have specific structure so i love talking to you about this uh you're an economist. Uh, a lot of what you—no, I,
1: I wouldn't say I'm an economist. Certainly not a trained economist. I, ha- okay. I, am a, I am a lay. I have a lay interest in the Austrian school, and am reasonably well-read for a layman. Fair, fair enough, and, and thank you for the distinction. So,
0: having said that, what is the role of an economist of studying economics in a free society? How, how would you categorize? Mm. Well, like, what is, what is economics? What is what is the study of economics? Is it bastardized in recent years? Um,
1: right. You know, like. Oh. Uh, i got to take my watch, man. You might want uh, <laughs> to go get a cup of coffee because I can go okay. a long time on this one. Um, right. <laughs> and, and, you know, look, ec- first and foremost, economics is a social science. Right. It is a social science. It is not chemistry or physics where we can create, you know, a, a view the world, make observations, form a hypothesis and test it empirically. Okay, you know, human beings uh, are social animals. They are often irrational, uh, impulsive, jealous, whatever they may be. They're willful. Uh, We're not atoms and molecules. So any social science needs to be strongly differentiated from the physical sciences in terms of its approach and and its its reason for being. So Mm -hmm. you know, what's the point of economics? The point of economics is to help us understand the world better, and as a result, to hopefully improve at least our material conditions in the world. So I would argue that the the job of economics is to help us understand uh, human action and choices in the context of scarcity. Hmm. And I think a lot of our friends on the left think that scarcity has is a artifice, that we no longer have scarcity or we wouldn't have scarcity if it weren't for all these right-wingers. All these you know, greedy billionaires. Yeah greedy, yeah, billionaires. yeah, greedy billionaires. Right, right. Yeah, yeah. the billionaires have are hoarding all the money, and that's why the right. rest of us can't have what we want. And there are people who believe that. Um, but this idea of uh, understanding uh, human beings and the actions they take, the choices they make, within a context of scarcity, that gives rise to all kinds of understandings that are mostly deductive. Right, we can come mm-hmm. up with ideas like time preference, that says, you know, all things equal most people would rather have things now supposed to later um, right. would you rather have your dream house at age 40 or age 90 exactly well, you'd, probably, you'd probably rather have it at 40 because at 90 you're not going to be diving into the pool so easily and you may not right. have too many years to enjoy it and you may not even be able to go up and down the stairs to that dream house so we can understand time preference uh just as an axiom we can understand uh that human beings value things less as they have more of them. So we can understand marginalism uh, axiomatically. You know, if you go out and get, uh, if you have a a hundred million dollars and you make another one million, you have a hundred and one million dollars. That means a hell of a lot less to you than that first million did. Right. Because that first million might've meant, oh my gosh, I was a, you know, $40,000 a year guy and now a million dollars, that means, Uh, My house is paid for. My kids are going to go to college. All kinds of things are happening. that So, you know, there's all kinds of things we can understand deductively and axiomatically and work from there. Um, Unfortunately, economics has lost its way. Uh, It has become basically intellectual cover for governments and moneyed interests. It's become claptrap academia, writing these endless papers that nobody reads, nobody cares about. We no longer have theory in economics. Everything is empiricism and testing. We don't have big treatises that used to be written by guys like Mises. We have just these really narrow uh, topics for which people, economists, win Nobel Prizes on really narrow things like plumbing and economics. Uh, Esther Duflo uh, won a Nobel for that. And so the whole profession has gotten away from in in my opinion, what it's supposed to do, which is help us understand the world. And and the way to do that is not by writing arcane papers that three other economists who have deep knowledge in your little subspecialty will right. ever read. It's to be a good teacher at university or high school. It's to um you know write books like Per writes, uh to help average people. Um so it's it's a, a, a sadly any profession that becomes part and parcel of academia very quickly falls into uh it becomes captured it, you know right. the the point of economics now as a profession is to create jobs for economists and and that's just that's just the nature of anything especially when when governments are involved in, in government schools but that's just the nature of of how uh, an institution like the discipline of economics gets captured.
0: Yeah, you know, and it's funny because when you said that, uh, the thing that popped into my head, I used to say the same thing about philosophy professors, that uh, if you were a philosophy student, your employment uh, or your, uh, yeah, your future employment depended on being able to run to the university where the last philosophy professor died, you know, that that would be your career path, right? Because people viewed it that way. Um, Let me ask you this. Do you find any distinction between and i don't know that this term exists i'm making it up between a technical economist like someone who studies uh to the extent that the data is available uh for example uh, monetary flow or um uh understanding uh how inflation rates the more statistical uh, sort of uh, baseline of the economic theory as opposed to what you described uh as a social science being uh you know no different than say Psychology or sociology, or something like that
1: yeah, well, as a social science, I would like liken it to philosophy and logic mm. um, but yeah i look that that's a good question for a professional economist, but yeah there there is a role for statistical mathematical empirical economics to help us there there's you know that's fine, but the idea that 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 those sort of uh corollary or auxiliary skills are not economics per se, right? Statistics Mm. is not economics. Mathematics is not economics. Right. Empirical testing is not economics. They can they can bolster our economic understanding. Uh the the problem is is that economics today is 95% that stuff and 5% theory. It ought to be the other way around. But um you know look, economists respond to incentives like anybody else. And the incentive is to get a tenured job at a university. And that requires publishing. Publishing requires that you specialize in arcane knowledge that nobody cares about. <laughs> but I mean, that's starting to break. There are big companies. I mean, most economists historically in this country have been employed by universities or by the Fed, for example. The Fed's a big employer. Um, but now more and more economists are being employed by places like Amazon, um, whether what they do in their job at Amazon is really pure economics versus sort of this hybrid of behavioral economics, you know, um i'll leave to people more knowledgeable than me but uh, you know I, I think economics is a great degree I think it's um w- great training for life or business uh, but i I think the graduate and postgraduate level economics and the academic economics is pretty lost
0: hmm interesting interesting um okay that's that's you know I I have so many more questions on that and I know like you said we could go down a rabbit hole take hours to go through but I I want to Hopefully, avoid that yeah. so so let me let me ask you this I've seen uh I've seen you on YouTube I've seen you on some programs uh, one of the topics that you seem to at least I think enjoy talking about is the whole uh, concept of money uh and and the function of money and what makes for good money I I don't think too many of us really put into th- too much thought into what is money? You know, uh, I mean, we hear the term fiat, fiat currency. You know, fiat currency will be the death of us all. And uh, fiat currency crushes liberty. Uh, and we need real money. We need this and that. So let me ask you, can you, give, can you give the audience like a very high level summary of, in your
1: opinion, what is money and what makes for good money? Yeah, it's interesting that we're having this debate dip- Conversation or debate because we've mm. lost sight of it. Uh, I, I don't think our grandparents had to wonder much exactly about what money was. And today, I think we've conf- we conflate money with credit. Uh, and there are degrees of money ness in different assets sometimes, including U.S. Treasury assets. So it, it's easy for people to become. Uh, overwhelmed or confused by what ought to be a pretty simple concept. I mean, we ought to be able to understand money as simply the commodity we use to trade with each other uh, to get the stuff we want. So we don't have to barter. Right. right? That's really what money is for so that we don't have to barter. And it solves the divisibility problem. If I don't want to buy a whole cow from you, but I want to buy, you know, the flank steaks from you. Well, you know, here's how we do that. Right. Uh, Especially if the cow's alive, um, <laughs> so that's that's how money arose on the marketplace as a tool, as a tech, as a form of tech, just like fire or the wheel, to solve that problem. You know, right. you know, early early on, all kinds of things were used for money, like stones and salt. Salzburg in Austria, you know, that's where salt came from, and salt was measurable, and you could pretty much tell the purity of it. And then gold and silver, of course, were measurable. You could tell the purity, you could weigh the ounces, you could assay the purity. Um, so those becomes, they, those became standards out of the market. And it's important to understand there's a whole side of the progressive left and monetary modern monetary theorists, MMT people, they dispute this. I mean, as a, as a matter of historical fact, they dispute that this is how money arose. Hmm. As as a as a marketplace commodity that solved this problem of barter, they they absolutely deny that. They say that money came from government issuance, and early on that was kings, you know. Um, so, and, and of course, once there started to be money, uh, in especially in the form of gold and silver coins, uh, which have been used for many thousands of years. Uh, then, of course, politics got involved. And yes, there was a tendency by kings and, and uh, monarchs to say, hey, why don't I take that gold or silver coin and melt it down, add a little bit of iron or or something worth a lot less to it, recast it and take that little bit of gold or silver that I took out of it and keep that for myself, right? Um, coin clipping. So that, that's, right. that uh, is an early form of government depredation on currency, so that's that's nothing new today. When we say the government devalues our money, uh, kings and monarchs did that in the past. Uh, that was a little more obvious to people; they knew it. They could look and see and feel that coin in their hands. Um, in an electronic world, it becomes a little more convoluted, a little more circuitous. You know, right. but th- the bottom line is that once money became political, which is to say, governments either produce it themselves. And even when there was a, a gold or silver backing to it, those governments then decreed a ratio of ounces or grams to their currency. That's a, a form of price fixing. You know, ever since that happened, um we've really lost apart from the devaluation question, separate separate question, but we've really lost our understanding of money and moneyness. And so, really, at least since the Franklin era, um excuse me, the Roosevelt era, Uh, we we haven't had a real sense of money as something that represents, even in paper form, an underlying commodity asset like gold.
0: Yeah, it is interesting that I think, um, whether you're on the gold standard, silver standard, I think people forget that probably either our parents or our grandparents, if they took a dollar to a bank, I guess legally, they were supposed to get that value of gold, right if we were on the gold standard and i think like i think that concept even so like my niece today would never understand that concept like she is like that generation of say gen z gen y is completely removed from that um and they have no concept of that so in the sense that you're right once money became rep, once whatever was being used for currency i should say um became more uh uh based on representation than actual holding of that currency, that's when you start to get into trouble. And I think that's when you hear someone say fiat currency, that's what they're talking about, right? Like it's a debt currency. It's a debt-based
1: currency, correct? Well, I like the term political money okay, versus market money. But fiat means it can be issued at will by a government treasury or central bank and need not be backed by anything, um, that would put a limit on that creation. So, a pure fiat currency. Uh, when you look at an example like the former uh, Zimb- or Rhodesia, the former or Zimbabwe now, the former Rhodesia or someplace like that, where you had a crazed government that literally just started printing, um, printing and printing and printing. With the Weimar Germany, Argentina, to an extent in the late '90s. Uh, more recently, Venezuela, uh, or even the U.S. Right? Yeah, I mean, yeah. that's in all we US, do, right? Yeah, And Turkey, I mean, Turkey's had a terrible, the last five years, Turkey has had a terrible currency crisis. So this stuff isn't just uh part of ancient history. I mean, we can see it today.
0: You're right. And to the extent that let's say we want to get back in some, say, maybe not in our lifetimes, but maybe our children's or our grandchildren's lifetimes, we want to get back to real money, market money, sound money, whatever term you want to use uh gold of course silver platinum these the precious metals always enter the conversation right because they have a, a store of value they're they're permanent we forgot to mention permanence right as as a quality of money that you know when i have some money it doesn't disappear when i die right i could pass it on to my heirs and that gold fit that description silver right diamonds um do you think that now the problem i'm sorry before i could, the problem with having gold say as your uh currency is that it's difficult to divide like how much gold do you take down to your local pizzeria to get a couple of slices. Uh you know, that becomes Mm -hmm. problematic, right? And that's probably how paper money arose, right? Being backed by gold. It's not backed by anything now other than the what's it credit and faith of the US government. Um do you think Bitcoin solves that? And I and I say Bitcoin as opposed to Ethereum or other forms of crypto necessarily for two reasons. One, it's the more popular one. Two there's a commitment, as I understand the tech, to, like, it's it's deflationary, right? There's a fixed amount. It'll never go past whatever amount. What is it? 11 billion, 11 trillion, whatever it is, Bitcoins. Uh, it'll never go past that. So do you see something like Bitcoin eventually becoming a standard uh, of money? Uh, is it a craze? Is it more of an asset than a
1: currency? How how do you view that? Well, it's it's up to the market to decide. I hope it does. And yes, Bitcoin does solve that problem of divisibility. Uh, in it, in a, and that was one of the big problems with gold. Of course, yes. it's heavy. It's, it's expensive to store, to vault, to insure, to ship as a settlement between two parties. Right. And so that's why bills arose because of, you know some bills in your pocket were a lot easier to deal with, and and one dollar could represent you know one thirty-fifth of an ounce of gold or whatever. Um, but now we have a digital world. So that divisibility problem really goes away. Now, Bitcoin addresses that, but also you can have you could still use gold and you could have a bank card or whatever issued by your bank that simply, you know, you go buy the, those two slices at your pizzeria and it simply knocks off a tiny little bit. However, it converts right. that with your balance in ounces. And, you know, so so gold in and of itself can certainly be divided using digital technology. That's not particularly hard. And there have been attempts at that ATM cards and stuff that, uh, already over the years, um, you know, I, I root for Bitcoin. Um, I, I know a lot of very serious Bitcoin skeptics. I know a lot of very serious Bitcoin, you know, uh, maxis all in, uh, you know, sell your house, sell your car, don't have a chair, sit on a, you know, um, and so I, I own Bitcoin. I buy it every couple of weeks on a just, you know, an auto pay type thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I can't say for sure because that's up to the market. The market ultimately decides what's money. And obviously, I'm biased towards gold. I work for a company that's involved in the leasing and bond business with gold and platinum and silver. Uh, and also the 5,000-year track record. Um, you know, yes, it's, it's certainly possible that Bitcoin will upend gold and completely remove its role as anything other than jewelry or industrial use right. and, and, and remove any role as a financial asset. But it's also possible that it won't, hmm. uh, because, again, that's up to the marketplace. Unfortunately, that's slightly up to governments as well. And uh, so I just I, I think that um, the antagonism between the two camps is something that I, I get caught in the middle of. But, yeah, I'm, I I think that divisibility it, uh, the problem is, uh, is you know, perfect fodder for the digital age we live
0: in. Yeah. And it's funny that sometimes the people you run across either personally or in their writings that are so anti-crypto, like Peter Schiff, I thought would be like, yeah, let's go Bitcoin. But he's one of those guys that's like, oh, it's a scam, you know, whatever. And it's kind mm-hmm. of interesting to me that even people that we might describe as f- one hundred percent free marketeers or uh, uh uh libertarian for lack of a better word right now uh would be against crypto like that, so that's that's interesting to me okay mm-hmm. let me ask you one final question theoretically, if the government if say the u s government we had a constitutional amendment limiting the supply of money, the printing press as it were to some formula that we kind of negotiated and i and i'm not anywhere near an economist to tell you what that formula is whatever it is like uh two percent of gdp or whatever um would you find that an acceptable sort of system to have no
1: (laughs) why not tell me why there there are proposals one of them is called ngdp targeting uh these proposals are uh Stepchildren of monetarism, Milton Friedman, who basically mm-hmm. said use the money supply itself to uh, you know apply the gas or the brakes to the economy. Uh, there are economists working today who say, well, let's let's target a, a particular nominal rate of GDP growth and expand our supply, the so-called money supply accordingly. I you know, I don't I don't like any of this market tinkering. I don't think that government officials or central bank officials will ever stick to any kind of rules. And we've seen that in 2008, they just said, oh my gosh, we have to do whatever we have to do to bail out AIG and and we will do, you know, we, we will take the Fed's balance sheet four or five X. Then they went way beyond that in 2020 in, in the response to COVID. So first and foremost, I just don't believe that if government officials or central bank officials, officials will ever abide by these rules or the Congress would ever hold them to these rules in, in a crisis, which we have all the time. Uh, but, but beyond that, I just think that um, the nature of central banks is that they can't be tinkered with, they can't be reformed, they have to be thrown out, lock, stock, and barrel, and that we need to you know, oppose them uh, using all of the uh, rhetorical tools or political tools at our disposal, as opposed to this kind of negotiating with them. Uh, so there's some there's there's certainly areas where I would say, you know, look, let's let's yeah, let's have that 10% tax cut. Um, but when it comes to central banking, I think it's just so inherently flawed, so inherently evil, and so inherently anti-capitalist. To have, the, to have money issued and run by governments is like saying, what, what if all the apartments and houses in America were, run, were provided by the state? What if all the cars? What if all the schools? I mean, too many of them are. What, you, right. you know, We would just say, wow, you know, what is this? The Soviet Union's North Korea? But yet we call ourselves a capitalist country and half of every transaction, one side's the good or service being traded. The other side's the currency being paid. Half of every transaction is basically controlled by a a, sort of a politburo. Uh, So, yeah, I'm not a fan of rules-based proposals for the Fed. Okay, fair enough. Good answer. Uh, So let me ask you this. If we do, if there is
0: sort of like this, this, Uh, Will of the people, the will of the nation to move towards market money away from political money. Do you think that will have to necessarily involve a revolution? I was I, w- I almost wanted to say violence but I don't want to say violence necessarily as a negative connotation but do you feel it would take almost an overthrow of the government in general like it's not going to mm. take just getting rid of the fed it's going to, it's going to take something as revolutionary as what happened in 1776 where hey we just got to press the reset button because we're so far down the rabbit hole when it comes to to central banks and fiat money and 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 the you know, the whole government spending in general, like that we can't control, you know, so it, will it take a, a will to say we're willing to trash the government? Or do you think there's a possibility that within the framework of, say, the current U.S. government, we can get away from uh political money to, to market money or real money?
1: Wow, that is a tough one. <laughs> uh, you know, pe- people want to be paid, especially entitlements. And the so-called fiscal gap, the, the projected difference between what we're likely to take in in tax revenue under even a rosy scenario over the next, let's say, 30 to 50 years. Right. And what, we, what we've what we promised people in entitlements, the gap, the delta between those two is something like $200 trillion with a T. So right. entitlements are unpayable. Uh, and we have to understand that those are debts, whether the federal government calls them debts or not, any private company would have to account for that pension liability as a debt. Um, so those are debts. Those are promises to pay that cannot be paid in any meaningful way. They might, you know, you pay them nominally if you just print. Uh, so that's the day of reckoning. Uh, the the baby boomers may, may get in under the wire. Um, and to the extent they do, I don't think there's any political will under from that voting block to make any significant changes. But, you know, if, if we go back to 2008, the total worldwide debt load, government, sovereign debt, corporate debt, business debt, household debt, mortgages, credit cards, student loans, everything was about 140 something trillion dollars. That was 2008. That was at the crisis. Now it's 305 trillion. So it's more than doubled. So it's clear that there there's going to be a, a almost a biblical debt jubilee, and how how it takes place, um, whether it, it it actually takes place in an admitted fashion, or whether it takes place by simply inflating those debts into nothingness. Uh, but either way, you know, governments, businesses individuals households around the world are not going to be able to repay all that debt right so how how do you have the great reset on debt um you know maybe the powers that be want to tie that in with climate change or maybe they want to tie it in (laughs) with with a new world order where we don't uh, drive as much or we consume less meat or you know there's all kinds of ways of looking at that it's just it's it's so far above my pay grade i mean i can't even i can't even begin but my, I'll tell you how I hope it unravels is some sort of decentralized fashion where there are different parts of America splitting up, perhaps politically creating, you know, deciding to use Bitcoin or something else going forward. Right. And that um, that investors, investors should be should take a haircut, not ordinary people. Right. If you if you buy U.S. Treasury debt, if you're if you're funding this beast. Then just like in Iceland, you know, it, it, you know, you should take the haircut, not not average people through inflation. So um, you know, I don't know why anybody's lending Uncle Sam money for any reason at anything less than junk bond rates. Mm. But it, here we are. So all these pension and hedge funds and all these you know university endowments, and and that's not all rich fat cats either. There's a lot of little old ladies to have a little bit of money, you know, and they're in their, in their right. whatever pension or, or whatever, a Vanguard fund or whatever it might be. So let's not just act like it's, there's somehow this rich class that average people won't be hurt too. But, but it sure seems to me that if there's going to be a, a default, it ought to be the investors rather than the general tax paying public who pays for that default. If you, if you let, uh, you know, if you, if, if, Lehman Brothers has to go under, then Lehman Brothers should should go under. If Bank of America has to go under, instead of buying countrywide and being saved by Uncle Sam, then it should go under. Um, At some point, I think we have to let all these defaults and bankruptcies happen. That's very tough politically. There's no political will for austerity. But I don't know how you rebuild an economy until you suck out all this debt and restructure assets.
0: Yeah, well, there is a destructive portion to capitalism that most people don't want to um, admit to, you know, who was it that to the Shump was a Schumpeter who, who proposed that I, I don't remember. Am I, do, do you know if I have that right? Well, was tax, right.
1: I mean, that's the, the uh, you know, in many ways, the harm is done during the boom, and the bust mm. is really just the, 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 the reckoning. But um, yeah, I mean, there's, there's a uh, an action and a reaction to all of this monetary and fiscal tinkering, and the you know I, the sad part of it, though, John, is that sometimes people do get away with it in their lifetimes. In other words, the politicians yeah. vote for things, and that and and they're dead before the problems come home to roost. I mean, the politicians who passed Social Security, I mentioned the entitlement crisis. Right. The politicians who passed that, you know, they're long dead. When they passed that bill in the 1930s, there were something like. 13 workers for every one retiree or something, you know, now there's two or three, maybe. So yeah, I mean, people forget.
0: Yeah, people forget when Social Security had the initial retirement age of 65 to start paying out benefits, the average life expectancy was 67 for men and 68 for women. So like, literally, that told you what the government was thinking, we'll pay you for three years, right? But now it's crazy, right? It's never been adjusted. And so even even as a statist program, it's failing because it just never was thought out properly, at least since FDR's time. Uh, okay, great stuff, but I don't, uh, I don't want to monopolize the whole conversation on that. So let me ask you this. Do you think that society in general, in other fashions, is becoming decentralized except for when it comes to money, the economy, and the government? For example, uh, you and I might naturally say, hey, I'm building out a studio to do podcasts. Uh, I go on eBay, I go on Amazon, I search for this, I search for the best value for what I'm willing to get. It may come from China, may come from Korea, may come from Europe, maybe somewhere uh, in Texas. I don't know, right? And I don't care at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. And in that way, I think technology has enabled a lot of decentralization in that sense. Whereas, look, in 1990, I would have to go to my local Best Buy to to build out a studio at, at much, much more cost to me, right? Now it takes me a tenth of the cost. And that's always been the history of unregulated markets, right? Like if, no matter what you could think of, if it's unregulated, it, it starts out expensive when it's leading edge. And then it becomes, you know, the, the affordability of it comes down, except for things like housing, healthcare, education, things that the government regulates. Right. Oh, yeah. So so do you feel that there's sort of this um, paradox going on where people intuitively understand the benefits of decentralization? in their day-to-day lives, but they can't seem to, for the most part, apply that to money and government.
1: Yeah, it's a good question whether the tech digital world is more decentralized or, or less. So it's you could argue either way. Um, obviously, governments are digging in their heels, and they they went from... Having power at the at the town level to the state level to the regional level to the federal level, and now at the international level we want to have things like the u n uh, right. the world, the world bank the i m f uh, the you know the w e f we want to have more and more control centralized there you used to have multiple currencies in europe they were replaced by the euro right. um, you, you know so there's lots of ways you could say the world is getting unfortunately more centralized but on the the flip side you know you talk about that price deflation that happens with the internet pricing and being able to buy stuff all over the world that's beautiful Uh, but also information i mean i think the centralization of information uh is has really been struck a blow by the internet age i mean i'm i can remember being a kid it was basically you had your local paper you, if you, you know, if your parents were a little more erudite or whatever, they might have gotten the New York Times, the Wall Street Journal, in addition. You had your local news, uh, that was at seven, and that was, I mean, it had, it was by the minute. You know, sports yes. at seven twenty, movies was seven twenty-five. You know, local. I mean, it was, it was really formulaic. And then after that, you had your national news, which was basically three networks: Walter Cronkite or whatever. And that was that, and you didn't have really any other choice for information other than um, big libraries. You might have a public library or you might have a university library, but when I was a kid, they wouldn't have had Hayek, particularly they wouldn't have, certainly wouldn't have had Rothbard or Mises. They might have had a little bit of Ayn Rand or Milton Friedman, right. something like that. That would be the extent of it. So information was a lot more dear to our grandparents. For us, it's not about getting information, it's about filtering it we've got too much coming at us right, right? we have all this white noise and so we have to use our time constraints and our energy constraints to say yeah it's fun to be on twitter but i ought to be reading this you know um so our our problem is the opposite of our grandparents yeah you know uh, they had to go to library and find out about stuff we we have to sift so i, I would say that's a, a real victory um and i think the powers that be hate the open and free internet I think they hate it with a passion. I think that's why they want to regulate it. I think that's why they want to kick people off Twitter. Uh, I think that's why they want to criminalize so-called hate speech or disinformation about COVID right. or whatever it might be. So they're they're clearly rattled. Um, but do we have centralized gatekeepers of a sort? You know, in the in the new world, is Amazon a gatekeeper? Is eBay a gatekeeper? Is uh, Twitter a gatekeeper? you know, these big, you know, we we en- envisioned a world that didn't have the old hub and spoke model. You know, IBM. Right. IBM had a, had a corporate headquarters and then it had satellites and all this and the distribution system for a company like GM with its cars, you know, was a hub and spoke. We said, well, you know, the internet shouldn't look like that. It should look like this patchwork of kind of little, of spider webs with little, you know, concentrated centers all over the place. Um, but if you were to, if you were to paint that picture today, there might be some choke points. Um, and yeah. before Elon Musk, for example, we saw that it was easy for government to pressure Twitter, and Twitter right. applied and, and pulled people off. So, you know, all things all things considered, uh, I think it's it's probably pretty good for for us that we have all these options available to us and that it's, it's harder to control information and everything really comes from that. And also education. I mean, the, the idea that you can hop on YouTube and or Udemy or something like that, and go, go take that algebra class that you, yeah. you didn't like in seventh grade. I mean, that's pretty, that's pretty incredible. And um, I mean, I I got to tell you, Jeff, all- I,
0: I I lament the fact that there was no, internet and no YouTube when, when I was going to college, because honestly, I, I'm a visual learner. Uh, you hear that it's a bit of a hack sort of cater- categorization, mm-hmm. but like mm-hmm. I've, I've stayed up for 12 hours straight going down the rabbit hole of quantum mechanics and I'm not a mm-hmm. physicist, right. But it's just something that interests me. Right. And I think, I don't know if, if the generations today truly realize sort of that they're on the precipice of this new age of, of information and of learning and of, of amplifying that effect, you know? So it's interesting to me to see how that, for as long as I'm around, (laughs) to see how that takes off and if it does take off, because I agree with you. I think it is great that information has become, in a sense, freer. And about your internet comments, isn't it interesting that I doubt if many, I I use the word kids and I know it's probably wrong of me, but if any kids today understand that the internet initially was created as an outcome, it was like an outgrowth of the Cold War where someone said, hey, we have to have a distributed network where the Russians couldn't take us take out the US communication grid with one strike, like we Mm -hmm. want this decentralized sort of many nodes that all connect and you can't, they're not all on one path. You know, uh, unfortunately, I remember taking network theory when I was in college, but uh, uh, and yet, now you hear for calls in some quarters of let's get the internet regulated let's get the internet under government control so we have a gatekeeper and we are protecting it's always in the form of a benefit right protecting the children eliminating right. pornography or whatever right, right? so it, that sort of uh, evolution is kind of interesting to me if not ironic uh, that we hear that okay let's let's move on a little bit for the sake of time um i once uh, i saw an interview i forget with who where you were involved and you said donald trump had to happen Donald Trump was necessary, if not Donald Trump, the idea of Donald
1: Trump. Uh, quickly, tell me a little bit about that, what you meant by that. Yeah, I think he had to happen because the Bush and Clinton crime families had to be stopped. I don't think he was some deep state planner. or anything. I think he was just this crazy guy who caught the powers that be unaware, and they thought Hillary Clinton would beat him easily. That the, you know Progressivism thinks there's an arc to history that things are always getting better and there's an inevitability of socialism and that Hillary Clinton represented that first female president. There was an air of inevitability, a deterministic arc. And when that was shattered by this crazy guy, um, the left lost their minds and had to go into an almost unbelievable degree of psychological coping. Yes, Russiagate, whatever it might be. And so, you know, Donald Trump did this country a favor by doing that. And we ought to recognize it as such. It was never about him or his policies or his personnel or any of that stuff. I mean, I don't want him to run again. I wish he'd go away. He won't. Um, but that was his role. And maybe now we're seeing maybe maybe Vivek uh, Ramaswamy was put on Earth just to, to show the world how awful Nikki Haley is. Mm. Right. I mean, if that's if that's. I know he's a billionaire or whatever he did with with was a little bit of a shady um, biotech type company and some you know there were some FDA approvals that didn't happen and so the valuation crashed but he had sold some stock in the parent before that oh, okay is that capitalism eh, but he's obviously a very smart guy and the the you know the idea that he is attacking Nikki Haley for the empty brainless person she is who would never be anywhere close. To even sniffing the presidency, were she not female, mm. um, is just beautiful, you know? Right. Uh, that's his job. Uh, that's his role. And if he does nothing else, then we we salute him for it. So, I mean, I'm so jaundiced uh, towards the political class that I don't, you know, I tend to see things probably more sinister than they are. But, um, you, know, you know, I think Trump had to happen. And it was it was so important to get this country off this one way uh, train to progressive fantasy land that it it just mystified me that people couldn't see the victory in this. The fact that you know seventy or seventy five million Americans were willing to go off the reservation to that degree and vote for this guy over the totally known evil of Hillary. You know the devil you know was Hillary. Right. I mean, yeah we it's her. we man did we know her
0: no i believe me, i agree with that um i'm out you know I have to tell you i'm a little I'm, I'm much like yourself, I wish Trump would go away, but I have to admit to being a very much an anti trumper not because he was the monkey wrench. if I can paraphrase what you said i don't it's not for the fact that he was the monkey wrench in the system that I'm totally down with um but I'm just wondering if the the result of a trump presidency in a trump presence has actually yielded something that's worse for liberty that's that's my concern right so for example uh the question i kind of had uh written out is 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 nationalism at odds with the ideals of liberty and i tend to think it is and if other than him being the monkey wrench in the process uh the guy who pulled back the curtain on the wizard uh is the, is the aftermath of his presidency something worse than what we started out with? What do you think?
1: Well, it might be. That's a fair point. I mean, I, I always want us to see the world with clear eyes, as mm. it is. And so one thing that Trump and Brexit and some other uh, mid-2010s, uh, mid-2010s phenomena showed us is that the left— are the reactionaries. Mm. So that was beautiful. Uh, They're so used to having everything. They had the progressive century. They won everything in the 20th century. Income tax, central banking, ideological world wars, great society, New Deal, Civil Rights Act. I mean, they were so used to winning everything. You know, legalized abortion. I mean, they're so used to dominate. The slightest pushback or even slowing in their program drives them just absolutely insane oh they lose their minds yeah. yeah you're right Yeah, and they demonstrate how reactionary they really are so you know that's that's i think one way to look at it but will their backlash will that reactionary backlash actually make us worse off you know where we've only got uh, approved candidates like uh let's say nikki haley versus joe biden or something like that my god um yeah maybe um but nonetheless, it, I still would say it had to happen, and and I don't. I think nationalism is a red herring. Um, America is not a nation; it's not even close. I mean, we're barely a country. America is basically an economic arrangement, and things work pretty well here. And an economic arrangement is not nothing. I'm not. I'm not right. downplaying that. Economic arrangements a lot. But the idea that we have a shared country is so is just so obviously incorrect. And then within America, I would say there's probably many nations, uh, micro nations, and you know everybody. I think this libertarians really missed the boat here. It's, oh, you know this this right wing nationalism that was never a threat to America. The the left, the 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 eighth grade teacher at your local school who thinks everything should be. You know, nationalized is a is way you know is infinitely greater threat than any trumper and and you know the idea that we are going to have some sort of nationalism nationalist movement in the U.S. I unless that involved the breakaway movement of of smaller nations, um, you know it's just it's just nations. I think can exist independent of states. I think you can have an organic nation, the cataloons who straddle France and Spain, uh, for example. Um, a lot of the French and Spanish are like, I can't stand these guys. Good riddance. A lot of uh, Spanish libertarians say, Jeff, you're all wrong about Catalon independence, because they want to have this big government socialist state. They're way to the left of the Spanish national government. And so you'd actually, by supporting this Cataloon and independence, you're actually supporting bigger government. It's like, well, okay. Say so you can say the same thing about Scottish independence. They want to join <laughs> with the EU and be well to the left of what they see as, you know, being governed by right-wing, relatively capitalist uh, parliament in London, right? And they they want to be governed by Holyrood and and uh and and be like the Baltic states. They want to be like Norway, you know, and have right. a much and so, you know, people say, well, you shouldn't support Scottish independence, Jeff, because that would result in less liberty for those people. But I, personally, I, I don't want to impose uh, my views on progressives. I, I you know, I, I don't, I don't think that that's, I I think we need to start talking about separation. We, we talk endlessly about persuasion. Um, I think separation is the way. And I think, universalizing everything and centralizing everything has been a big cause of our all this angst and hatred and division in this country. In other words, um, you know, why why should people in California have to worry so much about who Alabama selects as a senator? Well, because unfortunately we federalized a hell of a lot of things in this country that ought to be localized, like abortion. Mm. Right? Um, I I would I think the left should have cheered the end of Roe v. Wade. And, and and as we've seen, they've won some victories at the state level since then. I would right. say we're probably a 60-40 pro-choice country.
0: Yeah, right? I, I don't disagree with you on that in the sense that believing in liberty, true liberty, means that you you should allow people to let them live their lives as they see fit. And if they, hey, look, it's always a problem. If you let someone do what they want, they may not do what you want right that that's that is a uh that's an eventuality you have to be able to accept if you claim to be a proponent of liberty right that there might be a state out there that if there if secession was say the the result and there were 50 individual like you said nations throughout this country uh yeah be prepared that many of them if you're pro-life will become pro-choice and you know right. and vice versa so uh t- to use that particular issue but yeah yeah, Moses Friedman said, "If you uh, those who do not want liberty, object to it probably because they have a fear of liberty. That they, they just don't mm-hmm. think on a very intrinsic level that liberty will work. That there's always going to be a problem with liberty. So that's that's a, an interesting proposal. Okay, just quickly now, let me get your thoughts. What do you think the election of Javier Millet in Argentina? A, do you think he'll have a successful run as the president? And B." What is the effect on the U.S., say, of his presidency? Well, I hope
1: he does. Um, and his dollarization idea, it would probably help stem some of the bleeding um, of the Argentine peso. And it's pretty easy. Well, it's, it's certainly technically feasible. They don't need lots and lots of dollars, physical or digital, as I've heard some economists claim like how where are they going to get all these dollars to dollarize prices can adjust right you ju- and the, the us dollar for all of its faults is is much more stable than their own currency so i do think as an interim step that's probably wise and we shouldn't be too hard on him for not uh, wanting to immediately create some bitcoin paradise or something you know, right he's got a lot of got a lot of history in that country he's got a big population he's got uh, you know, older generations. I mean, it's not so simple. And he's also got a real left wing to deal with. Yes. Um, you know, there is a real hard left in Argentina. That uh, well, we've got a hard left here in America now too. But uh, so it's you know it's it's easy to take pot shots, But I wish him well. I I I, uh, I think there's a lot of opportunity there. I hope he uh, focuses on the economy. Um, and. Yeah, you know, it's he, interesting. He, he, I mean, but he, he already denounced the BRICS idea, so I wonder if he is doing that to make nice with with uh, the powers that be in Washington.
0: Yeah, and it's interesting to me because um, he's a weird blend or a refreshing blend, depending on your point of view, of uh, free market and cap libertarian user term uh, ideas. And a presentation that's wrapped up in a Donald Trump type of presentation. So I think that's a weird bit. Whereas you could say, well, Trump was the ultimate showman. He's the ultimate em- empath when it comes to connecting with his pe- the those that he sees as his people. Uh, I would never argue that Donald Trump has any sort of sound understanding of what we would call uh, the correct economic yeah. principles, right? And market principles. Whereas yeah. I think Millay does. I think Malay does have that sort of base of good uh whether you want to say Austrian economic theory or whatever um but it's also presented to you in a very trump way, you know, like mm-hmm. taking a chainsaw mm-hmm. everywhere he went to live and and that what was that little video he put out where he lined up all the uh all the agencies of the argentine government and he'd say ministry of sport nada and he'd rip it off the board yeah. or you know yeah. wh- whatever education department gone you know so uh i i for one I, look realistically he's gonna the best he could hope for is gridlock in that country. Like you said, there's a very hard left uh, and moderate sort of thing that are going to fly in his face at every turn. So I think the best he can hope for is gridlock. But uh, just just as a proof of concept, like, hey, here's a guy who did this and he got elected. I think that's a positive. But we'll see. Uh, to your point, we'll see how it turns out. Okay, Jeff. I, I love this discussion. I wish it could go on for uh, much longer, but it can't. So let me wrap this up in what we usually do with our guests, which is we're going to play a round of silly questions. These are going to be five questions I'm going to throw out at you. There's no right or wrong answer. I just want your response to them. So here we go. Okay. Uh, number one, do you have a favorite le- leisure activity?
1: Hmm. Yeah, I should be able to answer that quicker. To be <laughs> else, but I've gotten away from that. Okay. Yeah. So you used to be I golf. To, I, okay. was, I was hardcore in my twenties, yep.
0: Okay, fair enough. Uh all things considered, uh readability, accessibility, uh basic principles. Which economist work would you assign to college students to undo the damage done to them by their professors?
1: All has- things considered. Henry Hazlitt for his, you know, journalist with a clear writing style. Hazlitt. Excellent. It. Yeah. Yeah.
0: It's funny. Uh when I run into like kids my niece and my nephew's age in college i tend to ask them to look at all the youtube series from free to choose with milton friedman because uh we could quibble about some of his policies but i think also being a professor he was he had a, a great mm-hmm. way of getting through to people on a very understandable level but Hazlitt works for me too many people cite his what is it uh economics and one lesson mm-hmm. or something like that yeah. In book yeah they, they cite that as their you know Okay, great. Hazlitt. Uh, Greatest movie ever made?
1: Either Godfather 2 or Apocalypse Now.
0: Okay, I'm not even going to argue because those are such great answers. I'm not even going to bother saying anything about that. Uh, If you could have dinner with any three historical figures, who would they be and why? What would you talk about?
1: Well, maybe not historical, but one would have to be my dad. one would probably be, uh, not Ayn Rand, because she was such a ball buster. <laughs> be a I love that, I love that. But uh, probably Hazlitt and uh, maybe Mises.
0: There you go, Mises, Hazlitt, and your dad. Uh, great answer. And the last one, which needs to fall first, fiat money or centralized government?
1: I think money is the key. I think I think money is what makes those big governments possible.
0: All right. Jeff Dice, thank you so much for giving us a little bit of your time in this great conversation. I hope you've enjoyed it as much as I have. This was a great uh, talk. Everyone, you've been listening to the Big Questions with Big John with Jeff Dice. Jeff, give us your socials or any contact info you'd like so the people can follow some of your work.
1: Well, they can. I, I do occasionally write articles uh, at Monetary Metals, our website, but also I'm on Twitter at Jeff Deist, all one word.
0: Jeff Deist on Twitter, one word. We will have that at the bottom of the screen so people can follow you on Twitter. Folks, follow Jeff on Twitter. Uh, he's always got some insights that are worth your time, I guarantee you. All right. Until next time, this has been Big John. See you later. Have a good life. Peace.